most people will see a hand that's thinking. Because what the eye sees is color and form. So just to pay attention to how the mind can in with a concept onto the actual perception of, of color. And it will do it. It's not so much that to block that out, but just to get very mindful of the difference. Uh, exercise that might help that is sometimes doing the breathing with the eyes open and making the mind alternate between vision and breathing and you can see that the eye just sees color and the uh, two don't right. does make sense sometimes to work with uh, mindfulness of seeing you could sit with your eyes open and alternate the attention between the breath and seeing. This is a way of becoming mindful, the fact that the eye only sees color, and without jumping into the thought process. Not at 
Uh, at the moment, we're beginning to start walking. <laughs> that explanation. So that's a really important differentiation to reflect upon in the mind. And also just some consideration, some wise consideration. Um, We can play different edges. Some people actually like to play with the edge of life and death. I'm a little more conservative. (laughs) I start small. And it's just to see. It's, it's to have enough wisdom to see the place one is coming from. And what's very helpful is to realize that people have different edges. You know? And so for what one person would be very easy to do, for another person can be totally terrifying. And understanding that gives us respect for one another. Instead of judging, you know, or comparing, we really feel we really feel compassion. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. There was one. Just I'll share one story like that. Uh, after one of the retreats in Hawaii, I had gone camping with some friends out on the north coast of Kauai. You hike in a beautiful beach, a place called Kalalau, and there were, there were these high cliffs. We were camping on the beach, and this one friend who, who grew up in Hawaii saying, oh, let's climb the cliffs. You know? And it's like I looked up. There was no path up the cliffs. <laughs> you know, it was just like little footholds and handholds. And I really got frightened. You know, I didn't have any experience of doing that at all. I was very scared. And also there was the wanting to just go through it, you know. And so I went, and it's not that the fear went away. The fear was there all the way up and all the way down. But it was interesting to see that it didn't matter, that it's possible to act anyway if one chooses to do so. Yes, and it has to be done with that degree of balance so that we're not just wallowing in it, but rather exploring. So, for example, if there's a strong emotion, fear itself. It's possible to to actually go into it and to experience what it is. That's different than being caught up or identified with it. And so it takes a great deal of mindfulness, a great deal of awareness. But it's certainly, I mean, that's, it's tremendously empowering. You know, it, it empowers us to be with our experience in a total way. Fear does not have to condition that contraction if we know how to work with fear. Um, but I have found, particularly around emotions, that 
frequently, I, I am, I realize at some point later that I'm afraid that at the moment, I can't identify the fear of what I'm feeling, which holds me back in from Yeah. At whatever point you become aware that fear is present, at that point, take a very careful look at what it is. In other words, get very familiar, get very intimate with the experience of fear. And the more intimate you become with it, so that you really understand, you see what the sensations are, what the thoughts are, what the mental feelings are, then you're able to recognize those symptoms much earlier on because you've taken a very clear look. But mostly, we don't look so carefully at it. We get either swept away by it or we push it down and repress it. And that's why we don't recognize it when it comes. Did you follow that's the, the same way that we've been really working with precision, you know, in terms of the breath or bodily sensations. The same precision and sensitivity and clarity can be brought to the emotions. Is fear never quite a sensible thing? I mean, uh, it's, it's quite sensible to fight the wolves in the meantime. <laughs> <laughs> it depends how identified you are with your body. If you're identified with it, it's quite sensible. If you're not, fear probably wouldn't arise. There's a, to close, maybe I'll... Okay, one last question. And then... How do you work with objects of fear when you're not really sure what it means to Don't work so much with the object, but work with the experience itself because that's what's there. In fact, generally, the foundation for working with a fearful situation, the starting place is always to work with or open to or experience the feeling that that one is having. And that's very workable and tangible because it's right there. Whether the object is very clear or not hardly matters. And sometimes as you get accepting of the fear that's here, sometimes the object becomes more clear because your energy is not so, is not so bound up in, in pushing the fear down. You know, so the whole situation sometimes opens up. Sometimes it might not. Sometimes it might be... There's a time in practice you know, that has nothing to do with particular situations. It has to do with the simple awareness, certain stage of practice, where the insecurity of existence becomes so predominant, that is the predominant experience, the total fragility and insecurity, and the first response of the mind to that is tremendous fear. It's not fear of anything in particular, it's the fear which arises from seeing the total insecurity of, of phenomena. And it doesn't stay in that place, but it, it's a place that one goes through. Let me just 
close with this one story. It's uh, in response to the hungry wolves as, as another possibility. And I suggest it only as a possibility, not... Well, in, in the Buddha's former lives, before he became Buddha, he was known as a bodhisattva, that is, a being working towards Buddhahood. And there are many stories collected in a group of tales called the Jataka tales, which are the former life you know, stories. There's one time the bodhisattva was practicing in the forest, and he came across a place uh, on top of a, it was kind of on top of a big ledge, and he looked down and he saw a tigress and two young cubs, and the tigress was sick and couldn't feed the cubs, didn't have any milk. And he was, as it said, was so moved by compassion for the suffering of the tigress and the cubs that he threw himself off the cliff to be food right, for the tigress so she could feed her cubs. It's another possibility. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> and that is that um, redeeming qualities seem to need something to redeem. I mean, wisdom can't really be wise about wisdom. No love can love love. It seems to be more fulfilled love and hatred and greed and ignorance into out of that state of being into love. So that the, these two kinds of ways of being seem to be interdependent and probably co-eternal. And it seems to me that as a result of that, uh, what's going on is a kind of divine game. Um, that these things constantly interact and probably always happening, I don't know if they always will be. But uh, just from that point of view, it doesn't really matter which side of the game beings are on. I think I do. It certainly seems that within one's mind there is an actual process of purification that's both possible and that actually takes place. And so the sense that for each of us we are in this eternal dance of love and hate, and generosity and greed, and wisdom and ignorance, I think is not so accurate. Because, in fact, there is a process of purification of mind that's possible um, for each of us and has taken place in many people's, in many people's minds already. I was going to say something else, but I forgot. Do you think that wisdom and love could just exist on their own? That wisdom... Wisdom and love could be true and beauty. I mean, because it seems to me that they, they require the opposite, no really to have definition. Without falsehood, um, no. could one really have goodness, truth and beauty? Why not? <laughs> there no means of definition. 
Well, it's true that the definition or concept may no longer be uh, necessary, but I think we're not interested so much in the definition, but the actuality of it. And so, for example, if we take the Buddha as the archetype symbol and various beings that we may have come into contact with, you know, ourselves, we can certainly see that within the mind there is that possibility of eradicating greed and eradicating hatred and eradicating delusion. And that's what the process is all about. That's what we're doing. Often when the Buddha was asked these types of questions, he would reduce it to the most basic level and he, he would say, and you find it in many of the suttas, that he teaches one thing only. He teaches suffering and the end of suffering. Teaches the way that suffering is created through these unskillful or un unwholesome forces of mind and he teaches the end of that. Only teaching what? Annihilation, in the sense of the annihilation of greed as ignorance. And then the teaching talks about that when a being becomes enlightened, free of greed, hate, and ignorance, they come no more to birth and death. So, I mean, this seems to tie in with um, the previous question in terms of, in a sense, they are. Um, Steam goes out of the process if you drop the um, unwholesome qualities. So that seems to me relevant to Perhaps. <laughs> um, I'd like an answer. There's the Bodhisattva and then the Arhat. And I was. I'm a little confused. The arhat is not reborn. So, how does that tie in with, with, you know, helping people? Because they they get to this highest state, it would seem that it'd be better if they were reborn, and then they could show the way. Right. It gets a little complicated. The question was about the difference between the bodhisattva and the arhat. It gets a little complicated in that various of the schools of Buddhism have different ideas about what Bodhisattva and Arhant mean. And so it depends which, out of which tradition you're seeking to differentiate those two. And you're not going to get exactly the same answer, for example, out of the Tibetan tradition or Zen tradition or Theravada. Um, That's something, actually, that at the end of the retreat, if you'd like to explore more, I'd be glad to provide. Does the Arhat, by not being reborn, does he have an effect on the evolution of man, say, in the other planes? I mean, does he affect the evolution? Do you see what I'm saying? Well, in the sense that, I mean, under the assumption that the Buddha was an Arhant, fully enlightened being, and was no longer reborn. I mean, the effect 
of his enlightenment, we, we, here we are. If I understand the practice correctly, we're endeavoring to go beyond concepts. Yet when I heard the Rinpoche this morning talk in Buddhist concepts, I felt totally confused, in particular talking about being motivated because of returning as a dog or the, the realms of the hereafter, which is purely conceptual and can be verified, whereas our own concepts can be verified through the practice. So I just feel confused about all of that. Okay, I think that it's important to make the distinction between what perhaps we can't verify at this point and what can't be verified. Because there are potentials of mind that we haven't even begun to explore or examine. And there is the possibility of a mind which is actually able to see the karmic unfolding over lifetimes. Uh, and there's a real possibility, there's, there's that potential in the mind in, that could see that and verify it, even though at this point we may not be able to. I wasn't here when somebody asked, I think Jack was giving the talk, he told me that someone had asked a question of about whether in the presentation it was watered down. And so we got, in, in discussing it, we got all excited about giving the non-watered down version. <laughs> the Rinpoche gave the first act. <laughs> the reason that we often don't do that is precisely the point that you bring up that even though it may be a, real, a very real possibility in terms of the mind's capacity to see that, most of us don't have the direct experience of it. Which doesn't make it not true. It just means that we haven't yet developed the capacity to check it out for ourselves. So for the most part, that whole context is not stressed very much. Created in the premise of reward and punishment as this Christian dogma that if you're good and you'll go to go to heaven instead of hell, which is what I understood the Rinpoche to be saying, which seems totally contradictory to what we're endeavoring to do. It's not so much um, contradictory. I think it really depends upon. Um, the language with which it's framed. For example, as I understood what he was talking about, it was really an elaboration of the law of cause and effect. The fact that certain mind states bring about certain results. So it's not so much a question of good and evil, right, or pure and sinful, as we often associate it in some of the Western traditions. It's much more, and so not moralistic in that sense. It's much more an understanding. And, and in the Buddhist psychology, the words, even the words that are used are, are much less charged. The words are skillful and unskillful, or wholesome and unwholesome. And what determines the skillfulness or unskillfulness of a mind state 
is simply the degree to which a particular mind state results in suffering. That's what determines the fact that it's unskillful, not some absolute moral imperative. So, So the tone of it is quite different. And also, I think, and it's the next talk that I'm going to give on, on karma. Very central to the teachings of the Buddha is the understanding that this process is a conditioned one. It's not happening chaotically and it's not happening randomly. There are certain laws which are governing the unfolding. One of the laws being the law of karma. <laughs> Have you found anything worth thinking about? No. <laughs> <laughs> why, why is it that we are given so many concepts to think about? Okay. <laughs> using, using them to point towards our experience. Right. After you know, 20 years of school and I don't use concepts in that way so well. Right. The point to my experience is more to think about things. And the person that I find that talks are very disruptive to the energy is so different than my experiential energy. Right. I, I would suggest that um, the, the purpose of the talks is to provide some context of understanding and perhaps some inspiration or energy to do the practice, it may very well, for many of you, come to the point where it's not serving that purpose. And I would stop coming to the talks. I, mean, I, I came to that point in my own practice. The first, the first few years of my practice, I drew tremendous strength and inspiration from the Dharma talks and from just establishing a certain basis of understanding. And after that time, I much preferred just sitting and walking. And so each of you should really see for yourself whether it's helpful or not. Because you're quite right, it is, it is concepts. And if they're serving you, wonderful. And if not, to, to leave it. Yeah. I, that was a that was a very sincere suggestion, you know, to to really take a look at whether it's helping your practice or not. Awareness of the object can that be like reaching into a bucket of motor oil and, and grabbing a slippery bolt or something, or does it have to be like looking at pure clear water at it? <laughs> I think it will be every possible way, you know, and sometimes it'll be looking through the clear water and sometimes the other image and many others. And so really it's to be mindful of how it is because uh, the perspective 
and the level of clarity and the texture and the consistency of consciousness in each moment keeps changing. The important thing is to stay aware actually of how your experience is rather than trying to fix it either by holding on or by having a preconception. I've heard a number of times from the Rinpoche today and from Tungpulu Sayadaw about the loathsome nature of the body. Does that have any point in, I mean, in any place in this tradition? I, I don't find the body loathsome. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> have you ever opened it up <laughs> or not bathed for a week or two? There are things that are unpleasant, like sweat and hair in your soup and all that. <laughs> just in the context of all the rock and the space and stuff that's out there, it's alive, it's like really uh, an amazing little miracle. It's true. Both are true, I think. It's both loathsome and beautiful. And mostly in our culture, that particular kind of reflection is used as an antidote to the strong attachment we have to the body. It's really interesting. A few years ago, this wonderful Cambodian Manke Mahagosananda, um, who's just wonderful. He's, he kind of radiates metta and giggles all the time, and <laughs> always has surrounded by his books, and he's very joyous. And he came during the three-month course, and he read from that book that I think Sharon mentioned, the Vasudhimaga, Path of Purification. He read this chapter on... Um, the title of the chapter right, was Loathsomeness of Food. And in the Visuddhimagga, what it does is describe what happens. You know, how you put the food into your mouth and you chew it and it gets all you know, chewed up and it looks like it does. And you know, then you swallow it and what happens to it in the stomach and the whole process of digestion and how it comes out. And in very graphic very graphic terms. And one of the, mo- the common responses of people listening to it was being rather upset with the, with the description and wondering or asking, well, why is there so much aversion to food? And there was not any aversion in it at all. It was simply a description of what happens. Right? And a very graphic description. But we're so we're so unbalanced the other way that even when we begin to see this aspect of it, the mind often interprets it as being condemning or, or having aversion, where it's not that at all. It's just a clear seeing of what the process is. And so that's the, that's the perspective of those kinds of reflections. It's obvious that the body is a miracle. You know, and... There are aspects which are totally beautiful and wonderful. And also aspects when we really see the, the unpleasantness of it. We're, for the most part, especially in our society, we're quite unbalanced. We, we get very attached right, to, to the body. Sometimes it seems like I'm doing psychology, not 
oh, this is guilt, or this is self-hatred. Oh, I didn't know that was there. And then, you know, why is that there? It seems like that's not practice, but it's, but it's also emerging right out of the experience of finding out that I um, am a lot nastier than I thought I was a lot of the time. And yeah. things like that, or, you know, whatever you discover, just moment to moment, watching. Greedy, hatred, and delusion just seems to be kind of the order of the day. <laughs> there's, there's one wonderful line by some great enlightened being, self-knowledge is always bad news. <laughs> I think that... Just one thing in relation to that. Yeah. What I've been noticing is very interesting is that um, sometimes it's really hard to differentiate what is a mood and what is a, something that's becoming clear in your mind about the body and about the mind. For example, you know, if the body becomes loathsome or, you know, is it just um, an attitude you're having about yourself or is it actually a stage in the awakening of the awareness of the body? And um, I'm beginning to see how it's really important to verbalize to, to, to people who have gone through it, the, even what may be a mood, because you yeah. might just... Right. You know, negate it rather than right. get the understanding from the mood. Right. What you think is a mood, but it's actually not. Right, exactly. Yeah. That's, that's exactly so. Yeah. With respect to Michael's question, I think that, that in your question you were confusing two different processes. One was a meditative process and one was a psychological process, to use that term. The recognition of what is present is, is the meditation. And so if you recognize guilt or recognize anger or recognize sadness or happiness or sensations, whatever, in each moment that recognition or awareness of what's present is the meditative process. When you start trying to figure out why, then you're getting into a psychological process. And that's not necessary in this, in this endeavor. So I would just separate out the recognition of what's present from the interpretation or analysis of it. You like um, um, can't see what you don't accept. And psychologically, I'm aware of there's this real lack of self-acceptance. I'm thinking, so I get into a circular, you know, well, I'm not going to accept myself until I'm enlightened and realize there's no self. I think you. I think you can uh, simplify that process quite a bit by coming back to the direct experience of the moment, rather than some projected um, sense of self-acceptance or non-self-acceptance and what has to be done or not done you know, over time in the future, rather in each moment to see what the experience is, to be mindful of whether there's an openness to it or resistance to it. If there's a resistance, to be mindful of the resistance. And so it, it's always just a coming back 
being aware of whatever it is that's coming up, being closed to a situation as well. If, the, if there's that sense of closeness, fine, be aware of that. And so it's much less, uh, it's much less complicated. In the actual uh, experience of bare attention, there is no concept. In the using the skillful means of noting, you would be using a one-word concept or note to describe or to acknowledge the experience. The insight into anatta, into dukkha, into anicca is always intuitive. That is, it's not a thought. Out of that intuitive experience, a concept or thought may come to describe it. But I would not confuse the sequence of that, because thinking that there's no self or that things are impermanent is very different than the actual direct intuitive experience of it, which comes before any conceptual framework about it. And so I would just encourage you to continue and see how that happens. And it's true that very often as we have an intuitive understanding of something, just that, that intuitive opening to something being true, very often there is then the concept to describe it to ourselves or to somebody else. But that, that moment of clear vision or clear seeing is free of thought. There is a language uh, for this understanding, and it's really the language of Abhidhamma, or the Buddhist psychology, that analyzes experience in terms of different kinds of consciousness and mental factors and material elements. It's just that it's quite an awkward language for simple communication. And so we use the language, the ordinary language, of I and me and mine, conventionally. And if we understand that it's conventional usage, then it's no problem. 
but there is a very precise and very detailed language which describes this process free of the concepts of self and I. It's just not very, it's not very uh, convenient. beginning of what you said, were you talking about wide attention? Is, is that what you said? I guess I missed the whole instruction on their attention. Bare attention means being aware of the object without judgment, without analysis, without interpretation, without a particularly conceptual overlay but just the direct experience. So, for example, just hearing. If I ask you, what are you hearing, and you say, bell, that's no longer bare attention. That's a concept or a thought which we put onto the experience of hearing. So bare attention is just that moment of direct perception without the concept. The eye sees color, the ear hears sound, smell, taste, sensation, without any interpretation at all. That bare attention is applied in two ways. It's applied in a directed way, whether it's directed on the breath or on bodily sensations. We're directing the attention to a particular object. It's still bare attention because it's not an overlay of concept on it, but it's directed. This is very useful for the development of steadiness and stability of mind. When the mind has come to some level of stability, it's no longer necessary to direct the attention, and we can simply be with the whole changing flow of phenomena. In each moment, being steady, being stable, being aware of whatever arises. So it would be a breath, a sound, a thought, an image. Moment after moment, bare attention is being applied. The problem opening the field prematurely is that there's a tendency to get lost. Tendency to get lost. The mind gets seduced into various objects and thoughts. And so we use the breath to develop enough centeredness in order to sustain the bare attention in that open, choiceless way. So the practice is really an alternation or a back and forth. You, know, you work with the breath, and you can work with the breath a lot. You can really give a strong emphasis to it. And then after a while you will know intuitively it, it will happen that things open up and you're able to just be with this show of passing phenomena. But in both cases, it's bare attention, which means the simple perception of what is. Is that clear? Yeah, it just seems that, um, 
you know, following that, but there's, for me anyway, there's still, there's been so much attention on the breath that there's always awareness of the breath. That's fine. That's fine. There's no problem. It, it sometimes feels like a foreground background situation. And if that's what your experience is, be with it like that. And there's no problem. Just one finding that many um, of the senses are considerably exaggerated, specifically uh, sight and sound and tastes. However, as far as thoughts are concerned, I'm finding very, very powerful emotions that have been given birth by various thoughts that come and go. And these I find uh, alarming and, of course, um, enlightening. My question is, are these emotions ones that have always been there and because of mindlessness, I've not perceived them, or are they also exaggerated as, for example, a sound is very exaggerated? I think it's not so much a question of exaggeration, although that would be one way of expressing it, but perhaps another way is simply that one is more sensitive to what's there because of the mind being less distracted. There's actually a clarifying process going on. So instead of the consciousness being totally murky, it's less murky. And as it gets less and less clouded, we begin to perceive through all the sense doors, the mind included, we begin to perceive what's there with greater sensitivity and greater subtlety. So it feels as if it's exaggerated. Actually, it's what's always there. In other words, the sounds are no different. It's not that the sounds are louder. It's just that we're listening more carefully. The same thing with our mind and emotional states. I think it's the same that have always been there, but we're really very carefully tuned to it. Now, you forget, and having been through the process so often, I'm familiar with it. When we're in the middle of doing intensive practice, it's so easy to forget how open we get. You know, but there's a tremendous opening which is taking place in all of you. Um, sort of, a, I don't know that Jack read to you this, this one part of Suzuki Roshi where he talks about you know, somebody walking through the mist. And when you walk through a mist, you don't realize that you're getting wetter and wetter because it's just a mist, it's not rain. But as you continue to walk through the mist, after some time you're thoroughly drenched. But it's subtle. You know, the, the increased getting soaked is not, a, is not apparent as, you, as you're walking through the mist, and yet it's happening. And it's the same thing in the, in the meditation. You're, you're actually getting thoroughly drenched, <laughs> although you may not be aware of it. To become aware. <laughs> yeah. 
take a quick trip to Manhattan. <laughs> You'll be aware very quickly. Okay, one last question. I have a similar question. Uh, it seems that the more I can concentrate, then when I suffer, I suffer. I seem to be suffering far more, and uh, at the slightest trigger, what wouldn't normally be a trigger. And I'm wondering how this is going to be. I seem to be becoming more and more vulnerable, rather than getting more equanimity? Is this part of the cleansing process? It is. I mean, because we really see in a very clear way. It's not actually, I think, that we, we become more reactive, but rather we become much more aware of reactions. And so when we're out in the world and we're not so, you know, we're in situations that we think we're handling okay. Mostly, it's just that the reaction that's going on is subconscious. It's below the threshold of our awareness, which is why when people begin to get quiet and begin to open up, we find that we've accumulated these amazing amounts of energy, psychic knots. You know, we're really tied up because we've been accumulating all this mostly unaware, right? because our mind has not been that refined or open. And so it's really this question of opening and seeing on that more subtle level the kinds of reactions that previously went unnoticed. And through that process of awareness, and it takes practice, one learns how to be balanced. For example, and something you've all had experience with, when people start their practice, you know, the least bit of pain, and you can feel the resistance and the tightening in the body, there's a reaction going on. As you sit, you see that it's possible to actually relax into it rather than tighten against it. And so there's a, there's a learning how to deal with that level of dukkha, that level of suffering, and also a release of the accumulated tensions you know, that, that we've stored. So the important thing to look at in terms of your perception of suffering is really to see how, how accepting or how balanced you can be, or how mindful you can be of that experience. Now, Manindraji spoke uh, some days ago of you know, the different kind of stages and the, the different levels of enlightenment. This is part of the unwatered down version that actually each higher path, right, one's awareness of suffering gets more and more. Uh, intensified <laughs> because if what we it's like we're so used to uh, making deals you know it's like <laughs> buying a car or something but in this game there are no deals 
because the game is one of opening to what's true. And so it takes a tremendous amount of courage and a tremendous amount of commitment and a tremendous amount of interest to be willing to see actually what's there. And in that there comes a tremendous amount of joy. The the paradox of this whole thing is that the more open we get to the suffering that exists, the more joyous and the more happy we become. Because we're no longer fighting, we're no longer resisting, we're no longer struggling. We're open, which releases this huge amount of energy which has been bound up in kind of keeping it at arm's length. And imagine what it would take for you not to see an elephant walk into the room. If an elephant walked into the room, how much energy would it take not to see it? <laughs> Quite a lot. <laughs> and yet here's this, this pervasive truth which we are doing our darndest not to see. I mean, the relief of just changing our strategy and saying, okay, let me open to it, let me see it. There's a tremendous space and and joy which comes from letting go of the struggle. We're really, and this this is what's unusual to kind of understand, that it's through the experience of the suffering that's there that we come to the place of happiness. That's exactly, the Buddha is known as the happy one. And we all can become the happy one as we open. So, be happy. (laughs) Be happy in the suffering. Uh, In your initial comments, you were giving a psychological interpretation, a causal connection for the split, three different kinds of split you're talking about. I wondered whether that's a Buddhist idea or one that is coming from way afterwards, because one could easily see the cause and effect to be just the opposite of that. The psychological effects that we're talking about, the separation and the suffering, could just as easily come from the split as the split coming from the psychological effect. Didn't get it. <laughs> you were saying the causal connection is that the suffering comes about because we are split from reality, because we want to avoid the experience of the suffering. So therefore we split ourselves off in these various ways. It could come just the other way around, that man evolves. Without that causal connection, there was a point, like in the West, the split between subject and object didn't exist till around the 8th or 9th century, or probably the 7th or 6th century BC around Homeric times. It's historically, that's when it happened in the Western world. Now, the kind of suffering we're talking about could have arisen as a result of that split between subject and object. You're saying that that subject and object split happened because of that reason. So 
I think that scientists can argue either way, depending upon what culture you're coming from, as to which is cause and which is effect. Is it, is it clear now? It's clearer. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just two comments about it. Uh, one is um, that my sense, my an intuition, which I have no scientific basis for whatsoever, is that the subject-object split did not happen at a certain period in time. You know, it may be that the concept about it evolved at a particular period of time, but there's just this sense that in unenlightened beings, that subject-object split is there. That's, again, just a, a possibility to consider. Uh, the other is that I put this out as a possible model of understanding, not as the definitive explanation, because I share with you the, the sense that the process of how the sense of separation comes about could probably be explained from both sides and in many ways. So this is just one particular way of understanding it. Uh, and I didn't, I didn't intend it to be... Kind of, you know. did, did the Buddha use that as an explanation? Did he say that that was the reason for it? That it was to avoid the suffering that we made the split? Is that I, a Buddhist idea? I, I have not... I don't remember ever hearing yeah. I don't either. Uh, I think that's an idea that comes very much right. from contemporary thought right. and contemporary science imposed on something from the past right. that's not necessarily applicable to it. Well, I see it more as a description of what's happening now rather than historically. In other words, this was useful for me in seeing what we're doing in our minds now of how we're creating or one way of understanding this creation of separation through a resistance to suffering, you know, through a resistance to what's unpleasant, and how that blocks, how that's a contraction and a limitation, creating that strong prison of self in a very tight place, blocking, blocking the flow of compassion. And so it's, it's more seems as an expression of what we can experience what can experience now. It seems like the concepts are um, attributed just to the human mind, in a sense. And that becomes confusing for me because it seems that when I look at the world, things are occurring with a regularity that doesn't seem like it's just coming out of my mind. Like, the, the tree is not, that we know of, conscious. And yet, when it falls, the whole tree falls. I mean, I have the tree of this as a concept, except in my mind, and yet, I don't have to be there to think about it. The whole thing falls. It's not like it's kind of, it dissolves. So what is the reality of the concept, independently of the mind? Or is it? 
when the tree falls, it's not the word tree which has fallen. Right? The concept is the word tree. That's what the, that's what the concept is. The word tree is not that thing which can be touched and smelt and tasted. (laughs) Does that answer your question? Separation seems to be, I mean, we're taught separation is a concept, and yet things behave very separately. Okay. This would be a good question to close on, I think. (laughs) Before I answer it. What may have become somewhat clear in the practice is that we can perceive things on different levels. And so separation is a truth on some levels and not true on other levels. The the example which I've used a lot is, you know, this is a bell on this level and you hit it and there's a sound. And on the subatomic particle level, there's no bell, and these limits would probably not seem very substantial. What we have to do in our practice is to understand all of the levels, the level of non-separation and the level of separation, so that we can respond appropriately to the particular situation. It's just that for the most part, we've gotten very attached to the level of separate self, separate I. And so a lot of the the process is to let go of the attachment to that so that we can drop into other levels of perception where that's not operative. It doesn't mean getting attached to that other level of non-separation or non-duality because that would create its own kind of suffering. Freedom means being, being able, I think, to play freely on all of the levels depending on what's appropriate. So, 
what I'd like to encourage you to do is to forget everything that was said tonight, not think about it, and come back to each moment's experience, to every moment's experience with compassion. Let that be your practice for this week. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.